Kevin. I'm very happily out here listening to the bird sounds. This is an amazing space. Oh, this is gonna turn How me into like a, a bird watcher. Bro. Um, <laughs> well, come to the city with beds, man. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, great. This is, wow. It's nice this out is here. Such a, how did you know about this? My first interview is gonna be in Karen, so I just found the hotel in Karen. Which is a little crazy because it's not quite Nairobi. No, Karen has <laughs> never been Nairobi. No. <laughs> yeah. It is, is very, I think it's, uh, well, this is where Out of Africa was written. And this feels a little bit like yeah, out, out of Nairobi. Nairobi. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things, one of the unnerving things that you first realize as a foreigner visiting Nairobi is that many of your cohort, those other foreigners landing at Jomo Kenyatta Airport, seem to be looking right past the humans at Kenya. They're looking for animals. Nairobi is the world's busiest transit hub for safari goers. I am not here for animals, but Nairobi's wildlife is hard to ignore. In Karen, the district I'm staying in, named after the colonist Karen Blixen, who wrote Out of Africa nearby, the birds bring the safari to you kestrels and crakes and bee-eaters and bustards, sooty falcons and Jackson's widow birds all circle and sing. But I stand firm. It's the people I'm most interested in. And if I've found anything in two decades as a foreign correspondent and day drinker, it's that humans are endlessly fascinating, complicated, and occasionally even delightful. Case in point, this episode's guest, Kevin Mwachiro, an openly gay athlete in a country where gay relationships are illegal, a survivor of a rare cancer who is also the sunniest person I have met in ages. Kevin was a guest on one of the last episodes of Parts Unknown when Bourdain and W. Kamau Bell came to Kenya, and it is my pleasure to have him, like Tony and Kamau before him, on this show. Now, Kevin and I had this conversation many months ago, but... I'm recording this right now in an unsettling week for my country in 2021, a few days after a pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol building in D.C. In the aftermath, Kenyan Daily Nation reporter Elvis Ondieki posed the question, who's the Banana Republic now? It's a painful, if insightful, turnabout, but I will say this, Kenyans and many people I've run into around the world seem to just know more than we do about how to find joy in their struggles, how to thrive even as their government crumbles around them. I am very much in the market for those kind of life skills at the moment. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Kevin, what did you bring us to? What, to rescue me from my dire coffee situation. Yeah, when you told me you've got instant coffee, I was like, I'm not doing instant <laughs> coffee. I'm, just not, I'm not a coffee connoisseur, but I'm a coffee snob. So I'm like, I live in a country that has great coffee. Why would you? Yeah. Yeah, God. and I, I remember um, a friend of mine came home one time and he asked for instant coffee. And I'm like, I don't have instant coffee. And he used to come over and sleep quite a bit. 
And I told him, if you really want instant coffee in my house, you'd better come with your own coffee. <laughs> so he bought instant coffee. So he brought the Sanka for the whole... Uh, yeah, something like that. And people used to come and ask me, you've got... Any, anytime anyone wanted instant coffee, I'm like, that's Leslie's coffee. Use <laughs> Leslie's coffee I, and make it yourself because I'm not making you instant coffee. <laughs> I'm not getting involved and in I'm not getting involved foolishness. in this. Yeah, it did save me when I, didn't, when I ran out of coffee, though. Uh, um, right, so every once you, in a while. Yeah, two um, uh, black coffee from java house java house is a kenyan brand okay um so Ken, um, kenyan coffee house and um yeah it's good coffee it's good coffee it's good coffee let's do it i'm really excited about um, this sorry we had a bumpy ride here so it spilled a little bit um <laughs> the uh uh yeah right we're getting getting a slightly slow start because as i'm quickly learning in nairobi traffic uh dominates uh everything and they're doing construction on uh on on the main road on gong road coming gong yeah, road, yeah. yeah yeah um and it's uh it's it's wild out there i totally forgotten about that so when we turned on off uh, turned onto gong road i'm like god almighty um and then the the, the the taxi guy had to make a detour he had to go down gong road onto another road go up road went through some other neighborhood Others are about to still be on the road right now. And yeah. it's a Sunday. And it's a Sunday. And then right. there's a huge church that, and people going to church and like it it is yeah, it's amazing. And up here, you know, in, in the in the hills I'm I'm like uh like officially turning into a birder because it's so peaceful and there's five thousand types of birds chirping away. But I do feel like I'm I'm uh I'm really getting robbed of some of that quintessential Nairobi experience as long as I stay kind of hold up here in Karen. Um, although I did have like an hour and 10 minute Boda ride okay. across town, which is, um, it's like a combination of dirt biking and like sitting in traffic on the, you know, on the 10 freeway in LA. You uh -huh. know? <laughs> okay. No, I mean, Boda Boda have saved Nairobians and, and getting round. Yeah. Um, Uganda had them before us. Um, but um, I use them when I can, as much as I can. And now there's an app called Safe Border. Yeah. And I think Uber and uh, Taxify, which are other um, um, apps, um, also have the motorbike option. Yeah. And in it, case you actually have to get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it does it does help, and it also um, watches your wallet as well. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's going to be less of a. I mean, it was a very economical ride. I'd, I've never paid less for an hour and 10 minutes of like <laughs> sheer heart pounding thrill ride, you know? No, um, I mean, people have gone round it. I remember a friend of mine used to have a helmet. Um, he had, oh, before it wasn't mandatory to have helmets. So he got a helmet. He picked a border border guy and sort of trained him onto how to, and because he's a, he's, a, he's a motorcyclist as well, on training him on, on just how to manage the road. And he's the only one I, he used to use. There were a couple of guys. So he trained up his own Boda Boda dude to totally. like be a defensive driver. And totally. Like, wow. Totally. Because you could get some crazy Boda Bodas out there. Yeah. Crazy. I do wonder, I wonder where on the Boda spectrum my guy was. I did get hit in the head by a side view mirror of a truck. Oh, <laughs> you know, because, well, but I had a helmet, which was good. But still. <laughs> it was a big smack because yeah. he was like cutting in front of a truck and he forgot that he had a, you know, a half tall white dude on the back of his bike. <laughs> so this big like smack and I was like wait a second what, what's happening here um but but we did get there alive so you know so clearly he had some skills <laughs> i know there are people who will not be seen anywhere near border border 
uh, but they have helped people get on time. They've helped people catch flights as well. Yeah, I know people <laughs> who got out of taxis with their bags, held down a border border, and got onto a border border, dashed to the airport. Oh man, this is my this is my getaway day. My flight is later tonight. No, you're. I'm, okay. I'm having a. Uh, like a, a vision of my future. <laughs> no, but uh, it's, it's, it's Sunday, but Nairobi is unpredictable like that. But uh, you should be good. Okay. Uh, if not, we'll just put that put that bag uh, on your knees and and get to Boda. Um, all right. So this coffee is great. This is uh, this is exciting, and I remember feeling about you, you know like Colombians. Uh, God love them. Make incredible coffee. You know. Juan Valdez on down, uh, and but the the national passion was instant coffee, and it was always just very confusing. But it's one of those things where you have this, you know, kind of it's a commodity. It's a really valuable commodity, easy to export, um, and somehow, you know, I think it's 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 true in a lot of places that make the best coffees in the world, where people are just the the average person is like, well, I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to compete in the global market for like <laughs> these high quality beans. I'm going to just be happy with the instant and uh but but how like what is kenyan coffee drinking culture like is there there's some proportion of the of the population that is that recognizes that kenya makes some amazing coffee and, and kind of rolls with that or um the thing with with java house they sort of made kenyan coffee accessible to kenyans so to speak yeah um i would say maybe middle class Kenyans. Before that, we were getting high on instant coffee, you know, and you were paying a pretty penny for, for coffee. Um, then Java opened up and you could realize, and they had baristas there making coffee, good food as well, and you're like, yeah, it's it's not too bad. Yeah. But we are a tea-drinking nation. Uh-huh. You okay. Know, so uh, coffee is still the number two choice. Coffee is yeah. number two. You go anywhere, people will offer you tea first. And not just uh, tea bag tea, but brewed tea with milk. That That is it. Um, coffee is, um, yeah, a smaller proportion of people drink coffee, and especially black coffee. I remember um, two previous jobs I had, there were a few of us who used to make filter, drink filtered coffee. Okay. Everyone else used to have instant. They said the coffee we used to make was too was too bitter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's that's a right. word that uh, <laughs> my friend used to call it. I'll say it in Kiswahili if you don't mind. Kahawa mm. yakutoa um, I don't know whether I will keep this, but she like coffee that that terminates pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just like out there carrying a tray of miscarriage yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in a cup. Man. I think there's someone at the door. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd ask the guy to go buy some cot. Um, so uh, I have uh, been sort of internet stalking you and your various talks and interviews. You have a um, you have a, a, a very entertaining and, and interesting media profile, I guess you would say. Yeah, um, entertaining is an interesting way to use. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of it is like the kind of stuff that I would uh, would give me pause, like just getting up on stage, single person, telling a story, trying to hold an audience. Um, but I'm, uh, and you do it really well. And I'm kind of interested in in how you how you got into that, like. How did you decide, uh, or maybe it just sort of fell into place that you, uh, you know, that this was what you were going to do uh, for for a living? Um, I I recently took on that label of a storyteller. 
Um, I think this comes from my time at the BBC. And I've told people this. I consider myself a custodian of people's stories, even as a journalist. You know, people's people gave me their stories and I told them to the wider world. Um, and I love and I love hearing people's stories. So I think through everything as a journalist, as an activist, as a podcaster, um, as an um, as a cancer survivor and telling my own story, um, I think life sort of handed me what I'd been avoiding for a very long time and now find myself doing it. And people actually say I tell stories pretty well. Why had you been avoiding it? I don't... I love and I don't love being on stage. Hmm. You know, I don't like the attention. But I know once I'm on stage, I, I I become a whole new confident person and I feel comfortable on stage. And people, every time I'm up on stage, people are like, you look comfortable there. I used to act once upon a time. And yeah, the stage is also home. And I'm now doing this. Um, and I think over time, it's a question of valuing yourself. It's been a journey to actually get here and valuing my own story and realizing that I have a story to tell. And was it um, two, three years ago, I, I gave a talk on, uh, it's like a TED, TED version of Kenya called Engage. Mm-hmm. And I spoke about finding, um, finding my voice. Um, and that, I think, was turning point for me. I used to moderate quite a bit before that professionally. Uh, but now being on stage and telling people my own story and actually saying this is me finding my voice and sharing it and not feeling ashamed about whatever I have gone through um, has landed me now here with you. Yeah. Um, man, well, I hope doesn't, you know, this, uh, let's not make that an end point. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> this no. Is a, uh, uh, this is, this is a, uh, a, a humble detour, and I appreciate you. And I, and I realize that I, I, like sitting, I like sitting in front of a mic. And when, when I used to work at the BBC, and, and one of the requirements of the work as a journalist was to perform in front of a microphone and on camera. And I realized this, this is cool stuff, man. I, I do like cans. I do like microphones. I do like, yeah, this the audio. I love audio. I love sound. Um, well, let's talk about that because I guess, uh, you know, we're obviously this is a medium that we've jumped into uh, with great enthusiasm in, in podcasting. What, what is the state of podcasting in Kenya? Um, I mean, is it a word that people recognize? Is it... Uh, or is your audience um, both kind of local and international, or how do you how do you look at podcasting in particular? Um, it's very interesting you should say that. As I was buying coffee, I met I met another podcaster, a guy called Amani, and he. Wore... That's a very Brooklyn scene right <laughs> yeah. there. It's just like here we are at the coffee shop, just yeah. a couple of podcasters. Uh, you know, and, all right. And he's recently got into podcasting as well. And he wants to bring other podcasters together. I would say Nairobi, it's, it's a very Nairobi-centric thing mm-hmm. and very middle class. Okay. You know, um, and because and it, it, it's, it's, it's us having the liberty and the privilege to do this, to afford equipment like we have and to have the time. Um, so, But it is growing. It is a small, it is, it's very niche, if I might say. It's here in Nairobi and it's like... Better than ever. Let's see how long it lasts. <laughs> Hold out, battery. Yeah. Come on, little battery. Um, so, all right. So, so take me take me to that part uh, uh, about podcasting being a being kind of a luxury to have the equipment and the you know the time and the ability. I, I oh, sorry. 
Um, I I wanted to get back into radio at one time. I'd missed audio, and um, I wanted to come up with content, you know, spoken spoken word, um, um, and podcasting. And 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 uh, when I talked to people about it, they were like, "You should go into podcasting." I'm like, no, I want to go back into mainstream radio. And then after some time, I figured this might be my avenue of going into mainstream radio. I believe in um, um, the spoken word, spoken. Um, what's the term we used to use? Um, anyway, spoken word radio. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of that. NPR, BBC. Right. So, and that's my background. And I just like storytelling. I figured this is this is a way of getting Kenyans to listen. I wanna I wanna go mainstream, but after some time, I realized, and speaking to other podcasters, that this might just be an avenue to explore. Right. Because I rec- I saw it as very niche, as you know, and yeah. I and like everyone's doing podcasting in in the states, in 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 Europe, and you know, and it's not quite here. The audiences still listen to radio. Yeah. And commercial radio. You know, and I wanted to, and I, and I love public service radio. I really do. Um, and I wanted to go back into that, but that didn't quite happen. Um, then started listening to podcasts, started meeting other Kenyan forerunners who I can, uh, forerunner podcasters, and liked what I was doing. And I realized this this is something that I could do. Started buying kit, you know, good kit, listening to stuff on YouTube and tutorials. I went through quite a number of those. And uh, came up with content, um, hence Nipe's story. Initially, I wanted to have four podcasts. Then after just trying to realize this is a lot of work. So I scaled <laughs> yeah. down to, to Nipe's story, which is my podcast. But in general, it's a very urban thing here in Nairobi. People are beginning to, to, to recognize what it has and coming up with a lot of niche content. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about the uh, the promise of podcasting. I guess you can find your audience, and it doesn't have to be that big. Uh, but they will, you know, they'll kind of they can be with you deeply because they can find something that's just specific for their taste. I also like, you know, from my short time here in Nairobi, I'm, I see tremendous opportunity in podcasting because it's all about cars and traffic, and you know, <laughs> the, the commute. You know, I, yeah. Uh, so. You have like this, you just have so, so many human hours. You have uh, already in a car. audience sitting in Nairobi <laughs> traffic, waiting, waiting to listen to stuff. Waiting for Nipei's story. So tell me about that show. What is, what is it, what is it trying to do and, and how are you getting that done? Nipei's story is just trying to get people into listening to stories, um, Kenyan stories, African short story fiction. Um, I love stories. I love reading fiction. Um, and yet again, I, I love listening to spoken word. And this was my way of just getting involved in that. Um, it started in, I think, is it 28, I forget, December, December, November 2017. Okay. Um, just begging people for stories, begging people to, to voice stuff for me for free. I might just get in touch with you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is what the, this is how podcasting survives. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's the favor economy. And I did. I started off with three, and the response was interesting. Actually overwhelming. People were like, yeah, this is great. We need more of this. Um, so that's what Nipet story is. I, when I was a kid, I used to love listening to um, a program on radio called uh, Story uh, Mami Nossi's Storytime. It used to come on Tuesdays and Sundays, and she was a lady who used to just tell stories on radio. Oh, man. I loved it, mate. That sounds I, so I good. I loved it. 
you know. Nasi story time. Yeah, huh? I mean, Nasi story time. <laughs> and um, even when I used to work in commercial radio, I used to love listening to the BBC. I love news yeah. radio. Yeah. I love listening to just different programs that were coming out of the World Service. Can you still find Nasi Story Time online? Um, um, no, no, it's uh, not. I mean, Nasi Story Time. No, I feel like um, I'm trying to think like what maybe we have Garrison Keeler. You know, <laughs> I would I would love to trade. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but anyway, we'll have to we'll have to imagine what Nasi Story Time yeah. used to have been. You know, um, so I was like, this is amazing, and I just want to. It's a simple goal, mate. Just to make people love listening to stories, and there's a, there's a lot of African um, creative writing going out there, and I'm hoping to provide a platform for that, and also for a lot of queer writing that doesn't get a platform, um, especially in, in this form. So I just want to do that with with Nipe Story. I would love Nipe Story to have to have a Pan African feel. Yeah. First of all, so they could go across the continent and not Absolute. not just be four Kenyans. Absolutely, and, and and sometimes when I look at the the stats, it's you get people listening in in, in South Africa, uh, but the thing that surprised me there's a huge North American um, audience and, uh, and 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 a British audience as well. That surprises me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I could see I could see the appeal, especially because you know one, there's huge diaspora, and two, it's just it is a different. I mean, I've I've gotten to listen to some of the episodes, and it's beautiful, and in the way that it, uh, you know, the concerns are just different the the dialect the accents are different it's it's like transporting in some way you know uh as as you know if, if these were presented in from a local perspective in the states you could have a you know the same mission the same mandate but it's just very different the way that it plays and sounds and listens and you can kind of lose yourself in it thank you um and it's interesting i remember uh you did an interview in berlin where you were sort of talking about the flip side of that um particularly talking about the context of, of uh, I think, queer film, where you were sort of saying, you know, there's some really great films that you saw at the, at the Teddies, I think, where you were a judge, but that they didn't necessarily speak to you like it was just a different experience uh, because these are European or, you know, American filmmakers uh, was the sense that I got from that. And there is a way, um, you know, where your experience... It, just does have a local identity to it, right? I mean, there's it's a very Kenyan thing, even though you have common cause with people who are trying to do fiction podcasts, with queer activists, you know, with people in different countries, but your experience is just gonna be your own and, and fairly specific here. Um, so I, I don't know, I've, I, I'm interested in, in getting a sense from you, taking your temperature on, on, on where Kenya's at right now uh, in, in that particular realm, like queer activism, um, seems like a seems like a tough game right now. People people say it is. Uh, you say, I don't consider it a really tough game because we've been here a long time, so we sort of we're used to yeah. we're used to this. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had I had drinks with a friend yesterday who's visiting also from the states, and he's like, "It must be tough being gay," and and it's a question these days I don't know how to answer. Yeah. Because I'm just doing my thing. <laughs> and you've always been here. Yeah, I've always been here. Yeah. You know, some of my girlfriends are like, hook us up with single guys. I look at my phone book. I'm like, I don't know single guys. And if there are any single guys here, they're, 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 they're dicks. And I don't want to introduce you to them. <laughs> my phone book is full of queer men and women, you know. And, and, and I've normalized my that, that, that existence yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but the fact that we 
just almost a month ago, we lost a case in court that was trying to decriminalize um, gay sex. Yeah. You know, that was, um, that was hurtful. That was painful. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Yeah, I mean, I spoke with Winori about this too, and and uh, I think, you know, um, especially for, you know, as a three-year legal battle, but even longer than that, I guess just an entire life of, you know, wishing this to be true. But the fact that, mate, we were actually in court, uh, we, we, you have to look at the, at the positives. You know, I remember some of the comments that I got on my page. People were like, we're not coming to Kenya. We're going to boycott. I'm like, why? You know, the, the, we, we've, we've been in this space for, for quite a while. And the fact that 10, 12 years ago, we never even thought that we would be in court. Yeah. But the fact that on the 24th of May, people showed up in court from all over didn't care about the media glare didn't care what people thought but we were in court mate yeah that was that was powerful and even before that when the first time they postponed it we had activists coming from uganda tanzania and nigeria such was the magnitude of what we were doing and it had and i i don't think it will stop us the fact that now people know that queer people do exist in Kenya. They've always known, but the fact that we are coming out strong and I'm like, we're waving the flag next to the Kenyan flag and we are your, your brothers, your sisters, your sons, your daughters, your fathers, your husbands, your wives. We're like, put it, we need to, it's a way of waking up Kenya to the reality that queer people are here and there's nothing you can do about it and we're as Kenyan as you are. Um, so I think the space now and being involved with the Gay and Lesbian Coalition of Kenya and talking to people, it's it's now move, wanting to move that to dialogues and getting Kenyans to come out um, in support of us. And we've been I, I, I feel we've been preaching to the choir for quite a while and it's now engaging other members of society and saying, yeah, you know, um, this is who we are. What do you want to know about us? How can you help? Um, such that when we do go back to court, we'd have other people speaking for us as well and not just ourselves. Yeah. That would be great. I mean, if you look at the case, uh, Botswana luckily won theirs and, and people were making direct comparisons. I'm like, but you can't look at it that way. It's a very, <laughs> this is the journalist coming out. It's a very simplistic way of looking at life. That story is not that simple. Yeah. But the fact that I was in Botswana last year and the deputy mayor, who's a man living with albinism, came and opened um, the largest Pan-African 
LGBT conference that had happened on the continent. The fact that he was there was a huge thing. And I remember sitting there, I'm like, would we even get someone from the city coming to attend one of this? Yeah, you don't think Mike Sanko's showing no, up? I don't, I don't think so, <laughs> May. I don't think so, you know. You're uh, entertaining rapper-torned uh, mayor of Nairobi. No, let's, 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 let's not go there. Oh, man. <laughs> he, he vexes my spirit, uh, man. Mike Money. And uh, uh, yeah, that's how low we can go as a country. Uh, but yeah. so, yeah, just yeah. that idea of building some sort of bridges to other parts of society so you're not out here fighting alone. Absolutely. And then the fact that the president in Botswana gave out very positive statements about um, homophobia, saying that we can't be in this space and other people have spoken. We have a president who still describes us as non-issues. Right. Yeah. That's, um, you know, so we need to get them to move from non-issues. But I keep on saying almost everything in Kenya is a non-issue. That's why we are the way we are. So we're just being lumped <laughs> with everything else. Fight corruption, non-issue. You know, <laughs> So many amazing pressing issues that are actually non-issues. Exactly. Amazing. So when, when that happened on Christian Amon Poe and CNN, I told people were like, oh, aren't you annoyed? I'm like, no, I'm not annoyed. The truth is a lot of things that should be dealt with in the country have been made non-issues and we are being put into that category as non-issues with everything else. The shit that's going down on Gong Road, non-issue. Non-issue. The so. fact that no one's thinking, okay, let's put up bike lanes and make sure that there's street lighting. But no one's, it's just that, let's just put tarmac and make the road for people with cars forget about people <laughs> with bicycles so you you have joined the mainstream then by becoming a non-issue uh, we are yeah, yeah we are exactly that you know so um that's where the space is at we i'm just hoping that the ruling has just made us as a movement stronger yeah um will make us be a lot very introspective in how our strategy going forward will be yeah and for me personally i know it's made me bolder totally unapologetic about what I feel and the gay shit I'm putting out there on my, <laughs> on my, on my like face. Just like the Supreme Court has unleashed a wave of gay shit from yeah, Kevin's... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I wrote an article that's gone up um, on this platform called The Elephant. Uh-huh. They've been very kind in giving us opportunity to put queer stories out there. Yeah. And there are two of my articles there. And I'm like, yes, we need... And as a journalist, I'm taking... I used to be slightly unapologetic of, apologetic about it. And I'm yeah. like... I'm just going to put stuff. I'm just going to put the good journalism that the good journalist that I think I am into this this area where my energies are and where my life is is, is involved in. Yeah. And come up with good journalism talking about queer Kenyans. Yeah. And what it is to be a queer Kenyan in Kenya. It's when you um I, I think that it was a film festival or some sort of forum here that you were involved in that had the the tagline uh, the shame is a luxury we can't afford absolutely um, but that's that kind of thing is like you you because certain things are stacked against you you actually have to be bolder and brighter and and kind of more out there it seems to be your your perspective on it I was telling someone what do I have to lose now my shit is out there. You know, and I think that's the way you take power from people. I've hung up my dirty laundry. It's, I don't think it's that. I just use the expression. I yeah. hang it there like, yeah, that's Kevo's shit. Yeah. You know, so you can't say it. I've taken the power away from you. Right. Right. They, there's this, like, this sort of constant um, ongoing, uh, you know, this is the, the experience I think that, that gay people have had for a long time in the States. It's like this daily blackmail. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm, I've gone through a process and a journey, Nathan, where I, uh, where I didn't like myself pretty much. You know, I didn't think I was worth something to a point where I know what I'm worth and I'm happy about who I am in this space. 
you know, um, life has dealt me numbers, you know, I've, you know, thrown lemons at me and I've made lemonade, you know, and I'm dealing with that and moving on. You know, I, um, I was telling a friend yesterday, you only have one life. Right. How how are you going to spend it? Huh? How are you going to spend it? And if, 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 if this life is going to be used trying to make it easier for other queer individuals in Kenya, so be it, mate. And not just that, but also just trying to make a world, the world a better place for other folk, man. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing also that it, I, I feel like people understand very little of. I mean, clearly by some of the conversations we're having in the United States is, you know, rights for, you know, rights for LGBT, you know, sort of, justice or rights for minority groups it's not it's not even about them it's about you and like your like what kind of country are you going to be and i'm sure botswana is looking at it holistically as well as like all these goals that they have as a nation which include development increased tourism you know a equal standing uh on the world stage like all of these things are hurt when they diminish the rights of you know some large percentage of their uh, their population. And, you know, we have that same conversation in the States. It's just like, it's not about being nice to gay people. It's about how, you know, about your quality of country. You Absolutely. Know? I think that, yeah, I like that. And just being nice to all people. Yeah. You know, being nice to women. You know, I think we as a country could do a much better job in being nicer to our women. You know, I don't know whether you've, um, slight digression, you know, we still haven't, uh, fulfill that constitutional quota that requires 25% representation of women. Wow. Which isn't a big number. It's not a big number, brah. <laughs> it's, it's not a big number. It's but not totally proportionate, but but yeah, would, even that is beyond reach somehow. And that keeps on going back into parliament and gets, it, it's not, I'm like, why aren't we passing this? Yeah. You know, that is basic. The fact that we're not doing shit to to make life easier for people living with disability, for the for the for for senior citizens, you know, for people living with albinism, you know, for other minorities apart from us. Right. Yeah. And I'm just hoping that if we win, we will win for other minorities. And I think for me, that is important. Yeah. This win is a win for other minorities in Kenya. And that's what we try telling people, people. And someone said, you know, the, the larger populace don't get it until they're affected. Mm. You know, one of the things I'm I'm slowly getting onto another bandwagon is making um, I don't know how I'm going to go about it, but advocating for the legalization of uh, medicinal marijuana. Okay. You know, and people are like no, you know that that is important, and and, and I don't know whether you want to talk about it now or later, but as a cancer patient, yeah, that shit helps, man. Yeah, yeah, that shit helps, and if people can access it, and people don't and t- Someone was telling me Kenyans are not ready for it and will not advocate for it until they experience it. And I'm like, why do you have to experience it? Yeah, I don't think they want to experience it. <laughs> like, you, you, know, you know, yeah. Uh, just in order to have you become an educated voter, you have to go through uh, a uh, life-threatening bout of cancer. Yeah, fuck that. There's got to be an easier way they, to path and, to and enlighten Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, and I want to make life easier for people so that when you have to come across that hurdle or you know someone like, but here are options for you. We've done the work just so that so as to make this life easier for you. I mean, a week ago, um, a friend of mine, also who's got multiple myeloma, um, one of the side effects of her treatment is shingles. Oh, shit. That's a, that's a lot of pain. Yeah. Bra, I was on the phone with her. She was telling me what she's going through. And then I heard her screaming. Yeah. So for a minute, 
I just endured that. I was on my bike. It was the worst thing I had ever had. She screamed, mate, called her husband and kept on screaming. Kept on screaming. Did my head a number. Did my head a number, mate. I was so angry. I was so, so angry. I'm like, why why doesn't someone like her have access? Right. Where doctors can say, don't go into morphine. Don't go to this. Here's something that will ease your pain. And I just realized my cancer compared to her was was a walk in the park. Yeah, cancer comparisons. All right, well, let's get into that. Um, <laughs> I always like, uh, you know, we started this podcast with a uh, with a cancer episode, which was about me, which was uh, the cancer that I had had, uh, and I haven't had a really good cancer conversation since. Let's then. have a good cancer <laughs> conversation if you want to. Yeah, because that was you know among your multiple identities uh, and kind of. Um, you know, voices that you bring to the work that you do. I think you got this very unwelcome uh, addition to the uh, to the trophy case. I don't know. I don't know that, that's probably a terrible metaphor. Um, but <laughs> it is what it is. Bro. It is what it is. Uh, so tell me, tell tell me about about that. When did when did this happen? It was not long ago. Um, uh, I got diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer, in 2015. Oh shit! Okay, in, in October 2015. Um, and I, I have to say, I don't know. Uh, I, I had, um, I had the walk in the park cancer, the actual walk in the park. Which one was that? Uh, I had a thyroid cancer. Okay. Uh, you know, so it's just, um, I didn't even get, you know, sort of uh, classic chemo, uh, but it was a radiation treatment, um, and it was weird and it sucked and it was frightening, but ultimately it was a very different experience. Oh, hang on one second. Charles is back. <laughs> So tell me, uh, what yeah. is multiple myeloma? It's it's a it's a cancer that affects the plasma. Jesus, in your blood. That sounds grave. It. I'm. I don't know when You're people here. say that I'm here, <laughs> man. Um, my doctor says ignorance is bliss, and I maybe I was, I was just blissfully ignorant through that whole process. Um, I still don't get into the technicalities of my of of, of 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 my cancer because I'm like I don't understand this shit. I'm not a doctor. Yeah, just give it to me in the way I, I you know that I would understand. You know, and people talk about and I meet other survivors and they're talking about this count, this count, this count. I'm like me, I'm just sour. You know, my this is the central reading I look for, and that is it. All these other bits and my brain just can't process that. To be honest, yeah, I just can't. I'm like this is the main thing. Fine, and I'm good. So, you the, know, so, so you had the diagnosis. What is what is the treatment process like? Um, I went through chemo for six months. Jesus Christ. Uh, went to India for stem cell transplant. Um, was in India for seven months. Um, and I've been in partial remission and now in remission since um, I got back in, since um, 2016, so to speak. Proper remission last year. Um, I'm on what they call maintenance treatment where I take an, an immunosuppressant, so to speak, a drug rather, every day for 21 days. I get a week off and then I start again. So I'm on round or cycle number, I think 39 or something. Wow. That's yeah. like, uh, that's a number that you could scratch on the walls of your prison cell. Right? <laughs> exactly. You, you, uh, you have made it that far. Um, wow. So that's an entire year between uh, the the 
chemo here and stem cell in India, and it's just an entire year to to take to try to survive this and 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 beat that. What what is that? I mean, how do you how do you restart your life after that? Ah, oh, yeah. The thing is, mate, I lost um, my favorite aunt to cancer just around the same time I was diagnosed. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And I figured once the doctor said, you know, that um, that moved from my surgeon to an oncologist, and it, when they initially told me about the diagnosis, it was it could be I think I think it was pulmonary TB or something or multiple it was one disease or multiple myeloma. I keep on telling people it's like being on a plane and the stewardess tells you tea or coffee. <laughs> We're out of tea, so there's only coffee. You know, so it was, and that sort of made it easier for me to accept. This so when the doctor said you've tasted ne- tested negative for this, I knew okay, it's myeloma. And it's so you were you were served uh, the coffee. Yeah, so um, it, it was the bitter coffee, the bitter coffee, and and the moment that and my mom's other sister had died of breast cancer. Oh man! So I remember God, sitting. Your poor in, mother, huh? Yeah, I, I yeah. remember sitting, and and they had just buried my aunt Judy, uh, when all this had happened, and I figured, not me. I'm like this shit has to change. I'm like I will not let. I will not be another number. I will not be another funeral service. Not cause of cancer and not yet. And that instantly changed for me. I figured I'm going to fight this shit. That, that was it. I figured, no, I will not let this um, scourge attack, um, win in our family again. Um, and I think through that whole process, it, um, my writing had sort of gone into habitation, um, was it hibernation rather. And I think this, I just started taking control and just being open about my disease. And I think coming out really helped. You know, I figured I'm just going to put my shit out there for people to to understand. So this was, you came out at the same time that you started talking about having cancer? No, I'd come out before. Okay. But that whole it was practice. Big, yes, yeah. yeah, practice. Yeah, being yeah. stigmatized, ostracized, like, oh my God, you know, I'm like, I've already gone through that process where people sort of other you for some reason or the other. You know, so I'm like, I'm just going to make sure that if anyone wants to know what I'm going through, that they are all reading from the same song sheet, yeah. taking control of your narrative. Um, so I started blogging and I blogged my journey through treatment. I, you know, I still blog every now and then about cancer, but I just wanted to make sure that everyone was getting the right, the right script, the right story. And because of family and friends scattered all over. And bro, you can you can only answer so many phone calls, yeah, <laughs> and, and so many WhatsApp messages. So I'm like, what's other things? Just go into the blog. Yeah, like, right. All that shit, everyone, everything is there. Yeah, I have a friend who's who's uh, fighting cancer, um, which is very intense right now, and she's doing the same. It's just using. There's a site that is uh, I forget the name of the site, but it's really powerful she can you know say what she has to say once and then then there's also ways that people can sign up to like bring a meal over or like do do any of these things so it's sort of like integrated um help help telling the story help you know not being distracted by having to retell it uh and then also help with the things you need i i I don't know i'm kind of fascinated when i got diagnosed um to me it felt like it taught me something and maybe i took the wrong lesson or it's just for me but taught me something about, for example, social media, because I had been, you know, I think I'd been on social media quite a bit or on Facebook and, you know, whatever, pictures of my kids, some shit I was doing overseas when I was working. 
all of this stuff. And for some reason, I had a very visceral uh, kind of allergic reaction against talking about cancer while I was going through it. And I don't know if it was the uncertainty of it and just, you know, not wanting to not wanting to to talk about things I didn't know. I didn't know how the story was going to end. Um, and it, I will say, I mean, obviously, I, when we launched this podcast with Bourdain, the first episode was, you know, ultimately about uh, about me having cancer. So it's not like I was shy about yeah, it yeah. in the long term, but just in the moment while I was going through it, I I I just felt like, you know, it it, it gave me a sense of the people around me who knew me and were, you know, family and close friends, uh, felt like the people who would help me through this. And I, and I haven't really gone back to social media in that same way afterwards. Cause it just felt like, I felt like, well, if, if, if it's not something that works for me in, in a moment like this, then what, what actually is it besides, you know, kind of lifestyle marketing? Um, so I'm, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I don't know. It, it's impressive, but it's also something that I, I, just didn't have the same ability to uh, to be there in real time talking th- about it. I think for me, I like the word you say, it's lifestyle, lifestyle marketing or something, a campaign. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I figured if we're going to use social media to, to put on our good, why not put on our bad? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Because you know, well, that's life, man. You know, it can't be me um, at, at fantastic places in the country or on the continent or around the world, you know, taking trips and everything and yeah. meeting people. That's not life, man. This is life. This is me dealing with this shit publicly. Yeah. Just to tell you this, I've been dealt with a number. And also the fact that I realize I've got family in the States, I've got family in the UK, you know, I've got close friends in different parts of the of the world who did care. Yeah. And because of the way healthcare is in Kenya, we needed, I needed money for treatment. Yeah, right. And there was a GoFundMe campaign as well, you know, and there was that. So my stories helped complement that. Yeah. And people needed a story if they were going to give money. Yeah, right. That story was mine. Um, There is a national health system here, uh, but you need money to perform it well i guess or it, it, it is there's public health but accessing some of those services things have changed i would say fortunately within the last three years or so mm-hmm. but back in 2015 when i was diagnosed i remember um when, when professor riyad who's my doctor was telling me about the treatment options he gave me four options this is it and like costs you know, I was I was willing to just put all my savings. I'm like, this is what I have in the bank. This will see me through three months. And yeah. then, and I I didn't want to put my family through that. Yeah. And I remember my dad saying, "Don't worry, we'll go, we'll we'll find a way." And I my friend, my boy who also had fee, uh, breast cancer, she was like, "Cancer makes you guilty." And I felt guilty. I'm single man, gay. Um, I'm in hospital again. You know, I'd been in hospital twice that year before. And uh, I'm like, yeah, it's you again putting your family through this shit. And I'm like, now, how are we going to afford it? That the amount of drugs I was spending, amount of, the, the cost of what I was spending in a month was equivalent to my salary. Yeah. And I have to go through six months of chemo. My insurance almost was going to run out, run out, I think, a month after leaving, being discharged from hospital. So you, you're like, we we need to and I have to go for a transplant. How much a transplant? It's like two thousand five hundred dollars or no twenty five thousand dollars for a transplant. My goodness, on the higher end. Yeah, you're like man. 
and that was in the Indian that was in India health yeah. system. So you yeah. have to go there and then also live and yeah. That's, that's, so it was it was it was it was thinking all those things and trying to deal with the guilt um, and, and being alone and then yeah and and lumbering your family with this cost that, that they have to carry with you as well. And that is such a you know it's a very quintessentially American story that you've just told. <laughs> And it's funny. I was talking with uh, uh, one of the, one of the Uber guys who had, had just gotten hit uh, just a little bit in a parking lot before he came and picked me up, and he had this like fresh scratch, and you know, and he spent the ride telling me about insurance here, about car insurance, and he's like, "Yeah, well, you know, things are really messed up here. Like, you know, you pay into car insurance, and they they never really pay out, so we always just handle stuff in cash. And isn't that messed up?" And I was like, "Well, that's kind of exactly how it goes in the states too." I think <laughs> there's know? a yes and no to that. It's it's faster, you know, decide paying out instead of waiting for three months to get. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it is it is uh you know it's not something that either country should take pride in that these are you know Indeed. the way that health insurance and health costs. I mean, a, a single illness can bankrupt an entire generation uh, in the United States, and it's just. It's just facts. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a terrible thing because you're also dealing, obviously, with you know, uh, preservation. <laughs> exactly. Um, at the same time. Exactly. And you know, you and and when the doctor says my cancer doesn't have a cure, you're like, this is this is this is long term. Yeah. This right. This is long term. I have to start thinking of how not to lumber my family with this with this burden, and how I'm going to see see myself through this. Um, so going back to the whole social media, it made it also made the journey easier as well. Just receiving um, one of the things I struggled with, and I, was, I saw a therapist for over two years, and she told me is learn to receive kindness. Mm. And I bet you 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 must have experienced kindness from all quarters. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't get a lot of the other. Okay. I didn't get a lot of people who were like, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, whatever soundtrack you have, uh, you know, your own self-criticism, uh, it is nice to just be in a completely, uh, you know, a, a completely supportive environment in that Absolutely. Um, so I, I got a lot of kindness from all quarters, from strangers and none, you know, um, and the fact that my story was helping other people go through that. Yeah. Um, and as 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 Africa as a Kenyan man and use the word generally as African men we don't talk about illness very openly. Hmm. You know, I just knew by talking about this will help deal with the stigma of surrounding illness, surrounding cancer. You know, um, and just telling people you can go through this. And what you, I mean, what is the is it like a stoicism or why why is it? Um... Is it, does it feel like a personal failing or what's the what's the backdrop for Kenyan? I just think it's, it's, it's that whole element of masculinity where you mm. don't want to show your, your weakness. Right. You know, people don't man flu things. You know, you will not go to the hospital until like you don't have to wait for this to happen until it's really bad for you to go to the hospital. You know, get there early, get checked early. Yeah. You know, take your health seriously. And, and I hope and I was hoping I was trying to do that. Yeah, and not feel ashamed about 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 going through what I was going through, and just being open about it. Women are a lot more open about this their health challenges. Yeah, we I think we we need to learn a lot from that. At least in this in this part of the world, you know, women have to go. They the, the reality of breast cancer hits them almost every day. Check your breasts. Look for lumps. You know, they all know that. When was the last time you checked your balls? 
That's a good question. Yeah. Probably when I was going through this, when they were like, yeah, exactly. wondering where the cancer had gotten to. I, I, I'm asking you, and I'm like, I can't remember the last time I checked mine either. <laughs> but we sort of have to take, right. yeah. take ownership of that. Yeah. Every woman would have to check for a lump. All right. Oh, as, as often as they can. Listeners, so let's let's get this started. Listeners, check your balls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually true, and it's it's and it's you know these public um, these public health campaigns can uh, you know they can feel sporadic. They tend to adhere to like a single wealthy donor's you know pet illness and and something, but they really do um, you know they they can just put that little little thought in your brain. Yeah. Um, and it is. I mean, that was one of the things about getting cancer is you you do it's almost like walking through a veil of like you know a moment where you are just living and you feel you know in shape or out of shape but you're generally healthy and you don't even question any of it uh to a a kind of irreversible change in perspective where you you realize just the you know the weakness of the flesh the you know the 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 uh the frailness of the body yeah and it does change your perspective uh, you know, pretty completely. Um, I mean, going back to that period, um, people didn't believe I was the guy who had cancer because I was fit. Yeah. I was, I was, um, the previous year I had, I was, I I was doing marathons. I was attempting to attend, um, the, um, the comrades marathon in, in South Africa, which is an 18, I don't know what it is in miles, um, 89 kilometer road race. Wow. From Peter Maritzburg to Durban or vice versa, you know that's like maybe well, isn't it 40, 40 I, miles or something. Yeah, that's that's a that's a long ass marathon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I was I was that guy. I was that guy. I remember when I was in hospital being checked up, the nurses would ask me whether I was an athlete because everything was fine. Yeah, Every, Jesus. I, I was well, in my best form physically. I was also running marathons before I got diagnosed. Maybe. That marathons obviously cause cancer. <laughs> Let's also put that out there in the ether. I like that. <laughs> um, so everyone's like, you yeah. can't be the guy. You're the guy who lives healthy. And you're the, you're the guy now in hospital dealing yeah. with cancer. Some people some people are like, no, it should not be you. And like, it is. Yeah. And, and for me, like, yeah, it's happened. And a couple of people, a few doctors were like, you know, thank God you looked after your body. Yeah, and huh. the, the, my friend Mary, who I was, I was angry, mate. I was, I was angry for the first few weeks, and I couldn't understand. I'm like, I've done everything right, I've done everything right, and now I have to deal with this. And Mary just sort of helped put it into put it into perspective that it's like you're lucky that your body's now going to fight for you. You've looked after it, changed instantly. Yeah, changed and, and gratitude, mate. I would shower and pat myself and say thank you, thank you. You know, I'd have conversations with my body. I still do. And like, bro, let's just get through this. Yeah. You know, so I started looking after my body even better. Because I figured you need to see me through this, mate. That's interesting. I, you know, I, I, that feels extremely healthy from a mental perspective as well. I don't think I had necessarily the same response. I, I still, you know, I, I, my reaction to stress or, or, um, crises tends to be to to live a little wild. <laughs> I think that there is there's there's a time like that, but um, yeah. I, I mean, just, it takes me two three days now to get over a hangover, and I'm like, I apologize, like I'm so sorry, but that was a good night, you know, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But um, 
I think we allowed. We, sh- we should allow ourselves that. Like I said, you only have this life. Yeah, yeah. But, but, yeah, but I think it's a question of balancing. Yeah. No, and, and it does, uh, the pendulum swings uh, for sure. And I've, I've definitely, you know, one of the things since uh, since Bourdain's suicide, you know, uh, is just going to a, a sharp, you know, sort of uh, ascent to uh, the mountaintop of, you know, kind of um, uh, overdoing it. Um, and then kind of like gradually just working back down uh, in a way that I think um, may, may be getting closer toward where you've arrived uh, by natural disposition of just, you know, kind of trying to take care of yourself and, and giving yourself a little bit of credit for having made it this far, right? I mean, I use, I use, I use running. I used to use a lot of running analogies to describe my journey. Yeah. You know, it's like just get through kilometer per kilometer and that was, that was it. Yeah. Kilometer per kilometer. When you hit the wall, it's like, yeah, fuck this shit. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. overcoming the wall. Well, I mean, I, if marathons didn't cause cancer, which we figured out they do, then I would be more in support of that analogy. But it, it helped me get through it, bro. Yeah. It helped me get through it. Um, well, to use the marathon analogy, I think we've hit the finish line. Uh, Already. I, I know, so so soon. But I am like, I again, it, it's. Uh, I would encourage everybody to kind of go and see some of the, the work that you put out there, to listen to Nipe's story, to listen to your talks, which are, um, you know, really just kind of, uh, very moving and, 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 uh, paced in this really beautiful way. And, and I think it, uh, it, it's a, it's a great way of experiencing kind of the Kevin that, uh, that we've had on this show. And I really appreciate you spending the time. Thank you for having me. And, uh, thank you for coming down to Kenya. <laughs> we're here. Well, we're in Karen. It's still Kenya. <laughs> it this is, is a Kenya. really nice part of Kenya. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you, Kevin. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode, Kathy Mokanyazi, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle is our editor at RK. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week is our last in Nairobi, and we are going out with a bonafide star. Muthoni Drummer Queen is beloved in Kenya. Every time I mentioned I would be talking to her, faces just lit up all around me. You will find out why next week on the trip. We will meet you there. <laughs> <laughs>